It is a blessing to have each of you here with us today. And before I get into anything else, I do want to also wish my mom a happy birthday. Uh, I know she really doesn't want me to give her age, but I heard her doing it earlier, so it's okay. Actually, she is a dyslexic 17, and we are very grateful to be able to celebrate her birthday with her today. And I know that she is a blessing to an awful lot of people. I also want to say thank you, as you just heard Jenny mention, uh, there are always needs for people to volunteer in the church, and that will always be the case in every church. And I am grateful for the tables that have been set up, and actually there are some tables that will be set up in the foyer as well, so it's an opportunity for people to sign up, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, it's, good, it's a good way to get your foot in the door and get involved in ministry. Each of us have different gifts and abilities, and God has given those gifts to you for the purpose of using them within his church. So I want to start today with a question. What do Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Now, I know you're saying, I, I, what would they have in common? Actually, they have the same middle name. I know you... If my kids were in here right now, they'd be saying that is another one of those bad dad jokes. I get it. But I want to begin today by talking about our names. What is it that defines you and who you are? I will tell you that for me, it is the name of Jesus in my life that defines me. There are often other things that will try to define me, but it is the name of Jesus that actually defines me. Last week, I talked about being open to failure and how so often we have allowed our failures to define us. It's almost as if our failures or our sin have become our middle name. They become a part of who we are. And for some of us, we're like that kid in school who it seems like he's got 16 different middle names. We've got all these different failures and sins that have become a part of who we are. But if you remember last week, we also talked about falling forward, failing forward, learning from our failures so they don't define us in the future. Instead, they become stepping stones to accomplish even greater things ahead. For others, it's not our failures that define us. It's our successes or our strengths. I'm known for what I can do, or perhaps we're known for our relationships with other people. For years, my mom was simply referred to as Mike and Wally's mom. And today, I am often referred to simply as Diana's son, or I am referred to as my kid's dad. So what is it that defines you? I recently read through the book of Nehemiah, and I want to share with you an image from this story that is applicable to this question. We are first introduced to Nehemiah as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was a faithful Jew who had been raised in exile following the Israelites' defeat many, many years earlier. That being said, he has risen to a position of great value and importance. His captivity uh, and the captivity of Israel seems to have subsided, at least to a point. They're still in captivity, but some have begun to return to their homeland to go back to Jerusalem. 
Well, Nehemiah hears of the poor condition surrounding Jerusalem, the home of his people, and Nehemiah is grieved, and he wants to do something about it. So this is what he prays. This is in Nehemiah chapter 1, by the way. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Let me begin by simply saying that the beginning of this prayer is perhaps one of the most beautiful prayers you will ever Read, And it is perhaps something that ought to be prayed by each of us on more than just those tragic crisis moments. Next to the Lord's Prayer, it is perhaps one of the most clearly stated prayers that we have in the Scriptures. And it doesn't have to be during a time of crisis. In fact, in Nehemiah's case, he is probably in one of the most ideal situations imaginable. We'll look at it a little bit later, but he's got an audience with one of the most powerful men in the world. In fact, the king that he'll face is favorably disposed toward him, yet even in the midst of great things, there was a need that weighed heavy on his heart. It begins with a statement of God's great love and faithfulness, and that's something that all of us need to constantly be reminded of. He has done great things for you and for me. But then it moves into a time of confession. In verse 6, he declares, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. I don't know if you noticed what he did there, but he did not pray about the sins of others. He did talk about his father's family, but let me repeat it one more time. I confess the sins we, Israelites, that's we, personal, I'm a part of that, including myself and my father's family. Maybe we have done the same thing at times. It's so easy for us to look at the sins of others and we pray for God's forgiveness for them, for what they have done. Oh Lord, forgive this nation. Forgive them for what they've done. 
We have allowed abortion to take place. We have allowed sexual immorality to reign in a nation. Forgive our nation for what they have done. But there is a personal nature to Nehemiah's prayer. I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Now, is Nehemiah the worst of the Israelites? Probably not. He's probably a pretty good guy. At least that's the impression we get from the scripture. But that's not the point. The reality is that there were sins that he had committed and they needed to be addressed. Owning our sins and our failures can be a very uncomfortable thing, but it also can be a very freeing thing. He then admits that the suffering that he and his fellow Israelites are currently dealing with is of their own doing. They put themselves into this position. It's an interesting concept because the Israelites' greatest struggle was related to their captivity. But Nehemiah was born into that captivity, which means that it started before he ever had the opportunity to commit sin. But what he realizes is the fact this is the fact that he knows where to go to find help and how to fix what is broken. In verse 9, we read God's promise that if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So I want to begin today with a moment of confession, not to you, but to our God. And perhaps this is just for me. It would be hypocritical for me to talk about Nehemiah's prayer and say, this is something you ought to do because he's actually saying, this is about me. I need this. Maybe others do too. That's between you and the Lord today. I want to pray. Father, I confess today that I have not always lived up to the standard to which you have called me. At times I have come before you and I have confessed and there have been times that I've allowed sin to creep back in. I've spoken when I should have kept silent. I've been silent when I should have spoken. At times I have acted unjustly. I have compromised in areas where I should know better. My attitude has not always been the same as that of Christ Jesus. And today I ask your forgiveness. I choose today, as Nehemiah did, to return to you and obey your commands. I do pray for our nation. We, not they, have personally allowed sin and compromise to take root in our lives. This includes all kinds of sexual sin, hatred, malice, as well as complacency toward you. And perhaps that is the greatest sin within the church and even among pastoral leadership. May these things never define us moving forward. I do pray for a heart of repentance among our nation. But even if nobody else repents, Lord, I do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I do not pray that as a token gesture. I genuinely want to be the best that I can be when it comes 
to living out my faith and pleasing the Lord. And I hope that you do as well. In fact, 11 months ago, I felt led to put together a sermon schedule that included the scripture that I'm going to use with you this morning. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 was among those scriptures. And it's the call to God's people, including me, to get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That prayer that we just offered is a confession that these very same things that are mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 4 are the very same things that so often we have needed to confess. The only way for us to leave that sin behind is to turn it over completely to the Lord. I want this to be me. And I do believe that most of the time it is, but I want it all the time. I want to get back to the issue of names once more. I just read a verse to you from Nehemiah chapter 1. In Nehemiah 1.9, it stated God's promise of restoration. And it said, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I want you to see that the name of God ought to change everything. It is the presence of God that originally made the ground holy around the burning bush. And it was the name of God upon the Israelites that set them apart from the rest of humanity. These were God's chosen people, ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. And in the New Testament, following the resurrection of Christ, the church finds its identity in Christ. In fact, we are told that it was in Antioch in Acts eleven twenty six that the disciples were first called Christians, which literally would have been translated as little Christ. They bore the name of Christ even in their description. Let me suggest to each of you today that it is the name of Christ that ought to determine who we are and what we do. We represent him. Don't ever forget it. It's not all about your knowledge or your talents. It's not who you're related to or the things that you have. It's none of that stuff. In a manner, it is the name of God in your life that makes you special. Sure, you, you were already special because you were made in the image of God. And you are special because of the way you are loved by so many different people. But what really makes you special is the fact that you now bear the name of Jesus. You see, all those people who love you, there may come a time that they may no longer be here. Maybe they will pass on and go to heaven, and you would be left here without them. Does that mean you are no longer special? Absolutely not. You are made in the image of God, and he loves you, and he has chosen to allow his spirit to dwell in you. And his name is what ought to define you. Do you remember the story of Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4? They spoke with boldness and clarity. And then we see the religious leaders assessing Peter and John. In verse 13, we read that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, 
and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What was it that made them different? They had been with Jesus. But the reality is that not everyone outside of the Christian church will recognize and appreciate the name of God in your life. Well, they, they may be somewhat familiar with the name of God, but that doesn't change their opinion of you. We see this specifically in the story of Nehemiah. He closes his time of prayer with a request. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And although he is just a man, it is also important to note that he is a great man of influence with whom Nehemiah is about to meet. This is Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. If he says you're going to die, you better watch out. <laughs> if he says that you're going to die, then you're going to die. If he says you live, then you live. In Nehemiah's case, he knows that the king could either shut down his request or he could allow things to happen. In Nehemiah's case, he is still a foreigner living in a foreign land. He is a servant of the king. But not long before Nehemiah, the Israelites had been taken captive by these very same Persians. In fact, as one who had been born into captivity... Nehemiah had never known life outside of being the servant of another. In theory, Nehemiah is a nobody. Perhaps Nehemiah wonders to himself if it would even be wise to bring up his pain. And if he does, what's the right way to do it? So he approaches this. He's nervous. He's wondering, how do I say it? What do I say? Do I just keep silent and just wait for something to happen? Do I just let someone else deal with the problem? Nehemiah comes in and he's incredibly conflicted. Well, the Lord already had a plan in place. Nehemiah wouldn't have to bring it up. Instead, Artaxerxes, the king, would. Apparently, Nehemiah's grief over Jerusalem was evident in his face. In Nehemiah 2, verse 2, Artaxerxes says, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Artaxerxes' perception was correct. And instead of waiting for Nehemiah's request, Artaxerxes beats him to it, basically asking, what's wrong? Why are you so sad? And I love the transparency in Nehemiah's response. Listen to the passage again. This is a man that is, in many ways, he is afraid standing before the king. But the king just opened his door and Nehemiah is basically saying, okay, I'm going to walk through it. Listen, beginning in the second half of verse 2. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? 
he begins with that statement of, I am afraid. Nehemiah boldly speaks the truth that needs to be said. He does it in a way that is very gentle, but that being said, he's addressing what is there. The Lord started the ball rolling for him, but it doesn't change the fact that he's afraid. So he doesn't ask for anything. He simply shares why his heart is broken. The king wants to know, what do you need from me? What a great response from the king. What is it you want? Is there something that I can do? I'm the king of Persia. If anybody can help, it's probably me. What is it that you want? The exchange that follows is what I want us to focus on this morning. Beginning in the second half of Nehemiah 2 verse 4, we read this. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Now I told you earlier that the name of God within our lives and his spirit's presence in us makes us special. But I want to add that having the right man behind you, in our case, I'm referring to the Lord, can also lead to incredible blessing. In Nehemiah's case, there are two types of blessing that are important for us to see. The first is seen in verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is what I call an arrow prayer. In the midst of this important moment, he knows he needs to seek the Lord. He's already addressed earlier that he was afraid. And now what he's saying is, Lord, give me wisdom so that I may speak clearly what needs to be said. But there's more to this than just the Lord's wisdom, his presence. In Nehemiah's case, we see that the king is not against his request. In fact, Nehemiah hears that the king is okay to do it. He says, how long are you going to be gone? And the king says, okay, sure, you can go. But... Nehemiah goes further by asking him now to also support this adventure. Since you're willing to let me go, and we've already set a time for me to go, do you think you could also send me with some letters as if I were your representative so that these other nations will grant me passage and they won't stop me and they won't attack me and they won't fight against me? And I'm going to need some wood, by the way, when I get there to make the necessary repairs in Jerusalem. And I know I'm just a servant, but you think you could take care of that too? 
I love the summary statement that Nehemiah makes in verse 8. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. What a great statement. This wasn't about how great Nehemiah was. The reality is he probably had been a good servant for a long time. He probably had done well in front of the king, and it certainly seems as though the king is at least favorable toward him. He doesn't talk about his reputation. He doesn't talk about all the things that I've done to pave the way for this day. It wasn't about the king either. He does mention the king there. The king granted my request, but it wasn't the king who was gracious. It says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me. Do you know today that God longs to be able to bless you? He wants to give you good things. He wants to empower you to accomplish what needs to be done. But don't be mistaken by the thought that that means everything's going to be easy. We're not going to read the entire story of Nehemiah. I encourage you to go back and read it on another occasion. But in later chapters, we will see that there would be those who would stand opposed to the work that he was going to do. There would be neighboring nations who would feel threatened by the restoration of the city walls. They're afraid that they're going to rise up and then stand as a mighty army against them. And even among the Israelites, there would be conflict with individuals trying to get whatever they could from another. This would not be easy. At one point, Nehemiah would have each of the builders as they would work they held a sword in one hand while they held whatever tool they were using to build in the other hand. And the work was completed, but it didn't happen overnight. And part of that was because they continued to work having to fight while they did it. They faced a constant threat, and it wouldn't be easy, but the Lord would provide. In fact, I want to go back to verse 8 and 9 again. I told you that the name of God carries with it blessing, but I also want you to know that the name of God also carries with it authority. If God calls you to do something, then he will equip you for it, even giving you sometimes more than what you ask. Again, listen to verse eight. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. In Nehemiah's case, the king not only sends him with these letters, but he one-ups Nehemiah's request. I want you to notice that Nehemiah asked, can I go? Can you send me with these letters so that I can have safe passage? And can you arrange for the wood so that we can build? But the king, in verse 9, also sends army officers and the cavalry with him. I want you to know that God does the same for us. In his book, Angels, Billy Graham relates a story told by Reverend John G. Patton, a trailblazing missionary in the South Pacific in a region called the New Hebrides Islands. 
The story illustrates how God provides angels to protect and to care for his believers. We're just glad to, we're glad to have salvation. We're glad to have the spirit. And the Lord says, I will send others who will work on your behalf. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and darkness and principalities. And we've got all these different things. There are angels that are fighting for us and there are demons fighting against us. One night, Patton and his wife found themselves threatened by hostile natives who surrounded their mission headquarters. The Pattons thought for sure that the natives would burn down the headquarters and would kill them both. They prayed throughout the night asking God to protect them from harm. And the next morning, they were astonished when they realized that the natives had gone away. They had no idea where or why they had left. The missionaries again prayed, this time thanking the Lord for saving them. About a year later, the chief of this native tribe who had threatened them became a believer. He came to visit these missionaries, the Patents. When he asked about the incident of, when he was asked about the incident of that night of terror, the chief told the Patents that he and his men were too fearful to carry out their plans of attack. They had seen an army of giant men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands surrounding the mission grounds. Patton and the chief agreed that there was no other explanation other than that God had sent angels to keep the missionaries from harm that night. We don't talk about angels very much, but angels are actually a part of the scripture as well. We see many times where angels show up and they do a great work. This story that I just shared with you is similar to the one that's told in 2 Kings chapter 6. When the king of Aram sought to capture Elisha, often the king of Aram would set traps for the Israelites. And each time Elisha would warn the the Israelite king, avoid this area. Don't go to this place because if you do, there's a trap that's waiting for you. Well, it didn't take long before the king of Aram said, someone has given away our secrets. He actually blames his own troops. Which one of you is actually supporting the Israelites instead of us? Someone said, actually, it's not from us, but rather it is the prophet Elisha who tells your secret. He says, who tells even what you say in your bedroom. (laughs) The king of Aram becomes furious and he sends a horde of troops, a large military force to capture him. And when Elisha, the Elisha's servant woke the next morning, he finds this great army with all their chariots sitting outside and he is filled with fear. And in verse 15 of second Kings chapter six, he declares, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? It didn't look good for Elisha. But Elisha was not in fear. That's because he saw something that his servant did not see. In verse 17, we read, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes. Talking about the servant. Open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
Yes, the king of Aram had sent his troops and there was a great challenge sitting in front of Elisha, but it was nowhere near as great as the army that was ready to fight on his behalf. And I would say the same is true for us. There will be moments of difficulty. I am not giving you some cakewalk story that tells you you're going to have everything laid on a silver platter for you for the rest of your life. That is simply not true. But when things aren't going the way they ought to, I want you to know that you have a God who will fight on your behalf. And he will be your strength. And he will be the one that will take you from this point to the next. He will be faithful. The idea here is that we must trust in the one who is faithful to us. He will provide. He will bless. He will protect. You need to be encouraged today. Whatever it is that you face, God will not abandon you. If you will bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we need to know that you are fighting on our behalf. We are so needy. There are always going to be needs. There are always going to be things that, things that are going on that are beyond our control. And there are things that are going to go on that we're going to regret and we're going to hate having to go through them. But we know that even in those times that you are faithful and you will go with us. So today, Lord, I pray that you would make your spirit's presence real to us, just like you did with Elisha and his servant. When you revealed to them, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us your presence here. Lord, I pray that whatever it is we face, that today we would be encouraged to know that we do not face it alone. Father, I pray that you would comfort, that you would strengthen, that you would help us to walk faithfully forward. And we'll give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe today that God still wants to bless. God still wants to protect. And God still wants to provide for each of our needs. And I hope that you, as the body of Christ, will simply lean into him as he does. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.